This week, uh, we're going to discuss the question of what determines what the special content of a metaphor is. Remember last week, we discussed whether metaphors do have a special content, and we discussed Davidson's denial of that view. And by a special meaning or content, here I mean a content that the utterance of the same sentence in the same context would not have uh, if that same sentence were being used literally in that context uh, by the same speaker. And as we saw, Davidson denies not only that metaphors have a special meaning, but even that there is associated with many metaphors anyway, uh, special propositional content, whether or not we call such a content a meaning. And we went through some of the reasons why people would like to disagree with Davidson on that and think that whether or not we call the special content a meaning, there is at least a special content associated with many metaphors, at least in the normal case. And so to Today we're going to go through some views on what determines what that content is. So if you have something that has a certain propositional content, then you can ask the question, what gives it this content rather than that content? A natural view, uh, which Davidson was very much attacking in that paper, is the thought that it is a new meaning of some word or words in the sentence used metaphorically that determines what the content is. So when you use a metaphor on this line of thought, at least some expression in your sentence acquires a new meaning that it does not standardly have. Uh, and that's part of what gives the metaphor the special content it does, why the special content differs from the content the utterance would have if it were a literal utterance. And a few people uh, in the early contributions in analytic philosophy to the discussion on metaphor defended views like this, uh, one of whom I'm going to discuss is Monroe Beardsley. So Beardsley uh, held that, first of all, you need to distinguish within a metaphor the expression being used metaphorically and the rest of the sentence. So in the sentence, Juliet is the sun, Juliet is not being used metaphorically because it's being used to refer to Juliet as it is standardly used. Uh, sun, or perhaps the whole predicate is the sun, is being used metaphorically. And so in Beersley's view, when that sentence is used metaphorically, that segment of the sentence acquires a new sense. In Beersley's view, uh, the part of the sentence that acquires a new sense will always be a predicate or a, modifier, a modifying word of some kind, which is barred, as he puts it, by a rule from combining in its standard sentence, in its standard meaning, with the rest of the sentence. So in the case of Juliet is the sun, that's blatantly false, taken in its standard sense. Uh, and so that condition of acquiring a new metaphorical sense is satisfied. There's a rule, don't say what's blatantly false, that bars it from combining its standard sense with the rest of the sentence. And in Beersley's view, this causes the metaphorical segments to acquire a new sense, a new meaning, which on his picture of things, consists of properties uh, that most, so if the expression, use the letter E to stand for the metaphorical expression, E acquires a sense consisting of properties that most or normal E things are commonly believed to have, and that in the context, verbal or situational, are not denied of the things that the expression E is applied to here. So translate this into a concrete example. If you say Richard is a lion, on Beersley's view, uh, what part of the metaphorical sense of lion or is a lion here uh, consists of the property of being brave. Because 
on this picture of things. That's a property that most lions or normal lions are believed or thought of as having. Uh, and therefore, that's a property that is attributed to Richard when you call him a lion in a metaphorical sense. So it's a very simple picture. Uh, and Beersley gives a few arguments in support of it. So one argument he places a lot of stress on, given his general outlook on the interpretation of literature, is that the meaning of a metaphor can't be the speaker's meaning in using the sentence. So it's not what the speaker meant by the sentence that determines what the metaphorical meaning is. That would be a very natural view as well. And as we'll see, other philosophers such as John Searle hold the view that metaphorical meaning is the speaker's meaning in using the sentence. But Beardsley uh, denies this. And one of his reasons for denying this is that it's possible to interpret especially literary metaphors in ways that the author never had in mind or never intended. You might recall last week I mentioned Stanley Cavell's frequently quoted elaboration of Juliet is the Sun, where Cavell says this metaphor means that Juliet is the warmth of Romeo's world, that his day begins with her, that only in her nourishment can Romeo grow. If that's a legitimate interpretation, and a wide variety of people writing on this topic tend to accept Cavell as offering a perfectly legitimate interpretation of that, if that's legitimate, it's plausible to think that neither Romeo nor Shakespeare intended any of that. Uh, it would be a bit of a stretch, I think, and would require a bit more evidence to suppose that the Cavell-style interpretation of that metaphor uh, is something that either the fictional speaker or the actual writer meant. But if it's nevertheless a possible meaning of the metaphor, returning to Beardsley, that suggests that metaphorical meaning can't simply be speaker meaning. Now, of course, they may coincide. Uh, it would be very strange if they didn't uh, generally coincide, at least to some extent. But in Beardsley's view, as in his view about literary interpretation generally, the speaker's meaning what the speaker means does not determine what the metaphor means, any more than it determines what a literary work itself means. So that's one argument for the view that the distinctive content of the metaphor is determined by a change in meaning in the sentence. Another argument is with reference to dead metaphors. Dead metaphors uh, are actually, I think, kind of hard to identify clear examples of. But leaving that aside, uh, take something like the mouth of a river, often quoted as an example of a dead metaphor. It used to be metaphorical, but now the word mouth, on this view, has a new sense that it didn't originally have. So Beardsley says, it's most plausible to think that the moment when a thing gets a new sense in the course of becoming a dead metaphor is when it's first used as a metaphor. The only difference on this picture of things between a dead metaphor and a live metaphor is that a dead metaphor has a sense that has become standardized or common. It's not that a live metaphor doesn't have a special sense on Beardsley's view. It's just it has a sense that hasn't yet become common or standardized. That's another argument. Uh, and a final argument he offers in favor of this way of looking at things <clears throat> is that he says it's possible to combine literal and metaphorical uses of the same word in an argument that commits the fallacy of equivocation. Fallacy of equivocation is a fallacy in which uh, an argument becomes invalid because the same word is used in two different senses. So if you say uh, all banks offer investment advice, Jesus Christ was baptized on the bank of the Jordan River, therefore Jesus Christ was baptized on something that gives investment advice. 
that is an invalid argument, and it's because the word bank is used in two different senses in that argument. Beardsley says you can do the same thing with literal and metaphorical uses of the same expression. Uh, so, another biblical example as it happens. Uh, all faces have mouths. When God created the world, he hovered on the face of the waters. Therefore, God hovered on something that had a mouth. Beersley says, this too commits the fallacy of equivocation. Problem with that argument, a problem with that argument, is that uh, it, the words are used in a different sense. You can't commit the fallacy of equivocation without using words in two different senses. Therefore, one of those words, the metaphorical use of the word, uh, has a different sense. Now, not many people now accept Beardsley-type views, and that is in large measure because of Davidson's attacks on them. Uh, this was one of Davidson's main targets, and it often seems that in his paper, when he talks about metaphors not having a special sense, uh, he's particularly concerned with the view that the metaphorical segment, or the word used metaphorically, acquires a new sense in the way that people like Beardsley thought it did. Uh, some of Davidson's objections to these views were as follows. So he says, well, suppose that in face of the waters, the word face acquired a new sense. Well, in that case, says Davidson, it would be literally true that waters have faces. They just have faces in a different sense from that in which human beings have faces. But plainly, this isn't literally true, at least as long as it's a live metaphor. Therefore, face doesn't acquire a new sense. Second argument. If a word acquired a new sense when it's used metaphorically, there would be no difference between using a metaphor and simply introducing a new term into our vocabulary. Uh, but plainly there is a difference between simply stipulating I'm going to use face to mean cow, say, and using the word face metaphorically. Third argument he offers is a little more complicated. So if we were using face in a new sense when we use it metaphorically, then the first use of that word, metaphorically, would be a case of teaching the word to who you were speaking to. So in his example, he actually uses the word floor. He imagines that uh, you're on Saturn and you see the Earth from Saturn and you recall Dante's metaphor of the Earth as a floor. And you use this to your friend, with your friend from Saturn. And he says, in a case like that, if you were using a word in a new sense, you would be teaching the use of that word to the person you're talking to. And the next step is that when you teach the use of a new word, says Davidson, as opposed to using it to describe things, you are uh, drawing attention, as he puts it, to language rather than the world. Now, in a sense, he concedes that you are kind of drawing attention to the world, but it's for the purpose of drawing attention to the language you're using to indicate how that word you're using uh, is properly used, to indicate what it means. It's a kind of drill in the use of language. So you point at floor, and you say floor, that's a floor. When that's by way of explaining the use of the word floor, in Davidson's way of seeing things here, that's a case of drawing attention to the language you use rather than to the world. Now, the important thing about metaphor, he thinks, is that it draws our attention simply to the world. It's not merely a drill in the use of language, but it's crucial to understanding how metaphor works, to appreciating the effects of metaphor, that it gets us to notice something about 
the world. So as we saw last week, he thinks that it's a matter of drawing our attention to similarities or likenesses, often novel or surprising similarities and likenesses, between two or more things, such as the Earth, seen from Saturn, and floors. So all of these, for all of these reasons and more, not an exhaustive list, Davidson thinks that Beersley-type views, according to which words acquire a new sense in a metaphor, is a non-starter. Uh, now, I'm not greatly impressed by these arguments um, of Davidson's. Uh, I mean, for one thing, it seems perfectly open to Beardsley in response to the first point, that if face had a new sense, then it would be literally true that waters have faces. Uh, it seems perfectly open for him to reply, well, no, it's only literally true that waters have faces if waters have faces in a literal sense. His whole point is that waters have faces in a metaphorical sense. So it's perfectly open to him, it seems, to reply that it's only metaphorically true that waters have faces. Uh, that locution, it's literally true that, is another way of saying it's true in a literal sense that waters have faces. Uh, but if Beersley is denying that they have a literal sense, and saying that they have a metaphorical sense, then he should say, it's not literally true, i.e. true in a literal sense, but it's metaphorically true, true in a metaphorical sense. So this argument uh, doesn't really seem very strong against a view like that. Uh, also, the one about teaching the use of a word, uh, that's not obviously right either. I mean, you often can use a word for the first time in a new sense, uh, just by describing the world and assuming that your speaker will catch on to what you mean. So it's possible, for example, to uh, use what's normally a noun as a verb. You might say, well, in 2008, America was all Republican debt, and that's why they elected Obama. Now, you just use that, and you use that to describe the political situation in America. You drew attention to the world. But you didn't explain how you were using the word Republican in a new sense, though you were. You just trusted that your speaker would catch on to what you meant, the new sense of the word that in which you were using it. Uh, and nevertheless, you just described the world in doing that. You weren't merely drawing attention to your new use of the word you were drawing attention to the world. Uh, so on those counts, I think some of Davidson's arguments here leave something to be desired. Uh, but that's all I'll say about that view for the moment. Second very prominent view of metaphor is John Searle's view. Searle wrote a paper just entitled Metaphor uh, around the time of Davidson's paper in which he proposed various principles by which hearers figure out what speakers mean by using a sentence metaphorically. And these are the same principles, says Searle, by which speakers mean certain things by using those sentences metaphorically. And Searle gives eight principles altogether uh, by way of, well, I should say, he gives principles of two different types. The first type are principles that determine the possible contents of a metaphor, S is P. So Juliet is the sun. Uh, he gives eight principles that determine what could possibly be the content of such a sentence. And then he gives a principle that determines which of those possible contents are the actual contents of that metaphor. I'm not going to go through all eight, uh, but I will go through a couple of these to give you a flavor of them. So he says, in a metaphor SSP, one of the principles that determines the possible content of it are the well are 
what the well-known, salient, or distinctive features of P things are. Simple example, if you say Sam is a giant, one at least possible meaning of that is that Sam is big, because being big is well-known, salient, distinctive feature of giants. Pretty simple. So too, uh, the features that P things are commonly said or believed to have can determine the possible contents of metaphor SSP. So Richard is a gorilla in Searle's example. One possible meaning of that is Richard is aggressive. Gorillas, however, are not actually aggressive. Uh, that's a popular misconception. They are gentle, docile creatures, but because they are popularly believed to be, then that is a possible content of the metaphor. Richard is a gorilla. So too, features that are simply brutally associated by us with P things can determine possible content of SSP. So John is bitter in one of Searle's examples. Possible meaning of that is John is resentful. Because for whatever reason, we associate that flavor, bitterness, with being resentful. And similarly, Searle is inclined to treat figures of speech that are traditionally distinguished from metaphor, at least some of them, as metaphors as well. So synecdoche, the figure of speech in which you use a term for a part as, uh, and you apply it to a whole, as when you say all hands on deck, you're using a term for a part of a person, for a person. Uh, in these cases, also, quite clearly, the kinds of holes that P things are part of can determine what the content of SSP is here. Searle's not too strict about this. He says if you want to say that's a different figure of speech altogether, he's happy to accept that. But he's inclined to count it as a metaphor because he says the principles of metaphorical interpretation are rather various anyway. So that's that initial stage of what the possible contents of a metaphor could be. What picks out the actual contents of the metaphor? What determines which of those are the actual content? Most commonly, says Searle, the principle is this. In a metaphor SSP, the actual content is going to be determined by which of the possible properties indicated in the possible, which of the properties indicated in the possible contents are likely or even possible properties of S. If Richard is quite obviously aggressive, that fact helps determine that Richard is aggressive is the content, the actual content of the metaphor, Richard is a gorilla. So this principle of the likely or possible properties of S in the context filters out from the possible contents, the actual content. Okay, so it's a very simple view. Um, I think it's subject to an objection which focuses on that last step about the principle determining the actual contents. So the way Searle puts it is the likely or possible properties of S out of the properties indicated at the first stage. Now, this could be read, I think, in at least two ways. One way is as properties that S probably has or possibly has. But if that's right, then that's much too broad of a filter. So take Juliet is the sun again. One property that the sun is commonly believed to have, that's one of Searle's principles, is that it's a material object. And indeed, so is Juliet. In fact, that's not just a possible or probable property she has, it's a certain 
its properties he certainly has. But that is quite clearly not something Romeo is communicating. He's not communicating that Juliet is a material object, among other things. So if you take Searle's last stage principle that way, then it's too broad of a filter. Another possibility, though, is that likely or possible properties of S in Searle's principle should be taken as properties that the speaker probably or possibly has in mind or could have intended. So that would rule out that interpretation of Romeo's metaphor. But if you take it that way, then it seems to be too narrow for very much the kinds of reasons that Beardsley <coughs> mentioned. Namely, that it seems possible to interpret metaphors in ways that the speaker didn't intend. And which, in fact, you know in context they probably and couldn't possibly have had in mind. Uh, and not just with Stanley Cavell type explanations, elaborate, elaborate ones like that, uh, but it seems that you could have s simply an inappropriate metaphor. So you might be shielded from knowledge that gorillas are commonly libeled as being aggressive and only know that they are very gentle. And you might describe a loved one in that context as a gorilla to indicate how gentle they are. Now, in a certain context, it may well be quite clear that uh, you couldn't possibly have meant that he's aggressive. But I think it's plausible to think that you've misspoken there in a certain sense, that you have nevertheless, despite what you meant, what you communicated uh, is that the guy is aggressive, brutish, maybe kind of stupid, uh, all of these horrible slanders on gorillas that you're ignorant of, you've conveyed about your loved one. Uh, that's, I think, at least possible case, and so too with the literary interpretation case. Uh, so those are some, I think, difficulties that Searle's principles face. Now, the last view I'd like to consider today uh, is what's called the comparison theory of metaphor. When I was in school, and assume probably still, it's often said, metaphors are similes with the word like or as removed. So, Juliet is the sun, just is the same as Juliet is like the sun, but the word like is not there. Uh, that's a version of what is called the comparison theory of metaphor. And what's common to comparison theories is the view that the content of a metaphor is the content of some comparison, some associated or related comparison. And there are two types, broadly speaking, of comparison theories. Some people think that comparisons themselves, such as certain similes, can have a non-literal meaning too. So, uh, Juliet is like the sun, has, in addition to its literal meaning, or in, perhaps instead of its literal meaning, a non-literal meaning as well. And this sort of view is offered by Robert Foglin. Comparison theories of that kind, so figurative comparison theorists, would say, or are inclined to say, that the content of a metaphor is the figurative content of a related comparison. Literal comparison theorists, obviously, take the content of a metaphor to be determined by the literal content of some comparison. But before getting into those theories, uh, I think it's worth reviewing some of the standard objections to comparison theories, uh, because there are a lot of them. It's not a very popular view at the moment. Uh, in a more extended piece of work on this, uh, I think I identified about 12 standard objections to comparison theories. When I say standard, I mean ones that are repeated by many other people uh, as 
tending to show pretty decisively that comparison theories of metaphor can't be right. Davidson raises a, a few of them. One point Davidson makes is that every... So sh I should also say a lot of comparison theories are construed as the view that metaphors are similes in the sort of schoolroom view. You don't have to take that view, as we will see. But Davidson, in attacking the comparison view, says this. First, all comparisons are trivially true. Because everything is like everything else, and in endlessly many ways. So he says. Uh, a dandelion is like a dinosaur. They're both living things. Uh, they both are designated with English words beginning with D. Loads of ways. And in fact, if you allow disjunctive properties as being properties, then it's pretty easy to generate the truth of any comparison whatsoever. So for anything you like, A is like B, because A has the property of being either A or B, and so does B. So the truth of a comparison comes very cheap. And so, Davidson says, this shows metaphors couldn't possibly be comparisons because not all metaphors are trivially true, but every comparison is. So that's one view. Another objection uh, raised by Richard Moran, Kendall Walton, uh, Beardsley raised a version of it, is what we might call the reversibility objection. And this is the view that uh, simply similes can be reversed. So hell is like life means the same on this view as life is like hell. And that again is because if hell is like life, then life is like hell in exactly the same respects. Nevertheless, not all metaphors can be reversed without a change in meaning. The sun is Juliet would mean something very different, or would have a very different special content than Juliet is the sun. Therefore, metaphors can't be comparisons. Comparisons are reversible without a change in meaning. Metaphors are not, or not all. Now you notice that these objections, and there are more besides, certainly, attack the view that the content, the special content of a metaphor is just Juliet is like the sun, or a mere statement that A is like B. They don't attack the view that the content of the comparison is Juliet is like the sun in such and such respects. So Juliet is like the sun in being beautiful, amazing, etc. Those are two different versions of a comparison view, and they're not always distinguished by the view's critics. Sometimes they are. But other objections apply to the other version of the view, namely the view that the content of the metaphor is that Juliet is like the sun in being beautiful and being amazing, etc., etc. But Searle raises a large range of objections to this view. So Searle points out that, or argues that, metaphorical assertions can be true even when the corresponding comparison is false. So returning to the poor old gorillas, Richard is a gorilla might be used to make a true metaphorical assertion. But it's false that Richard is like a gorilla in being aggressive, nasty, stupid, etc. Therefore, metaphors, the content of the metaphors can't be the content of a comparison, even of that kind, even of one that specifies the respects of likeness. A similar kind of objection so raises is that sometimes 
when there are properties shared, it's only metaphorically true that the properties are shared. So, in effect, they aren't shared. The similarities themselves, as he puts it, are metaphorical. So in his example, Sally is a block of ice. You might explain that by saying, well, Sally is cold, like a block of ice. But of course, Sally's not cold like a block of ice is. That's certainly not what you're communicating. Uh, she's only metaphorically cold. So to say Sally is cold is to use yet another metaphor. So underlying that metaphor, Sally's a block of ice, is, in a sense, a shared property here, but it's a property that's only metaphorically shared, and therefore really not shared at all. And Searle says, maybe with enough ingenuity, you could get some properties that are literally shared, and that might plausibly be the content of the metaphor. Uh, but the very fact it takes so much ingenuity and difficulty to come up with them should make us suspicious of the view. So even the difficulty of thinking of literally shared properties that could be meant here should count against the comparison view. Okay, that, now that's a small selection of a large range of objections. Uh, now I think a lot of these objections are not very good. Uh, objections to the comparison view. And one thing that persuaded me of this uh, was a paper by Severin Schroeder, which is on the back of your handout, along with some other references. Schroeder's paper, Why Juliet is the Sun, uh, is one that defends the literal comparison view. Unlike Fogelin, who defends the figurative comparison view, Schroeder defends the standard sort of naive view, I don't mean naive in a pejorative sense, view that metaphors are abbreviated comparisons and that their content is the content of some literal comparison that they abbreviate. And he goes through a wide range of objections, uh, far more than I've mentioned here, and responds to them uh, largely effectively, I think. So I would recommend you take a look at that paper. Um, but I'll say a bit about how he develops his view here. So Schroeder's thought is that a metaphor is a kind of elliptical comparison or abbreviation of a comparison. Uh, and the thing about an abbreviation is that, or, or an ellipsis, or something that's elliptical in the way this word is used, the thing about an abbreviation or an ellipsis here is that it has the very same content as the thing it abbreviates. So if you talk about the UN, uh, you're saying the very same thing as you would be saying if you had said the United Nations. Abbreviations certainly don't have uh, a meaning different from the thing they abbreviate. However, Schroeder does not think that metaphors are simply similes with the word like or as removed. That, he concedes, is much too simplistic. He says there's no formula that it applies to every metaphor and which enables us to expand it into the unabbreviated comparison. So in his example, sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care from Macbeth. So he says one plausible way of unpacking this is to say, sleep's impact on care is like someone's knitting up the raveled sleeve of a garment. So you spell it out as a comparison, but not merely by adding the word like or as. Have to take a more nuanced view of this. Uh, we just rely on common sense to work out which comparison could be the relevant one from case to case. There's no formula that applies to every single one. 
So now consider some of his replies to some of these objections. So against the view that every comparison is trivially true, Schroeder says this, well, this view only works if you take a comparison to be the claim that there is some property or other shared by the two things compared. But he says no comparison should be construed that way. The fact is some comparisons, of course, specify the point of resemblance. So uh, in, to adapt an example he uses, uh, Gibbon was said to be suspicious, a very suspicious character. One way of comparing you to Gibbon would be to say, you're like Gibbon in that you're suspicious. But many other comparisons leave the point of resemblance unspecified. And that's not because the claim is merely there's some property or other that's shared, but because the property that is being said to be shared or being claimed to be shared goes without saying, given the context. So if we've just been discussing what a suspicious man Gibbon was, you could simply say, you're like Gibbon, convey that you're like Gibbon in being suspicious. Now when you make that comparison, Schroeder stresses, you're not just claiming there is some property or other, but I'm not specifying which, that you and Gibbon share. It goes without saying in the context which one it is. The fact that we don't specify it, in many cases, doesn't support the Davidson view of what comparisons are. Just means frequently the respective resemblance goes without saying. Similarly, uh, common or background knowledge can make this appropriate. So if we both know that children tend to be unreasonable, uh, and that's a feature that appears applicable to you, uh, then somebody could compare you to a child simply by saying, you're like a child. Again, claims not just there is some property or other that you and a child share, and children share. He says it's no more plausible to construe comparisons in the way that Davidson does than it would be to construe the utterance of I do at a wedding ceremony as merely the claim there is something or other that I do. It's something very specific that you're doing in that context, despite the fact you're not specifying it explicitly. So comparisons are not all trivially true. The fact that metaphors are not all trivially true doesn't rule out the possibility that they are also comparisons. Likewise, the false, comparison, the false comparison objection that Searle raises with the gorilla example, Schroeder doesn't make much of. So when you say Richard is a gorilla, what you're doing is comparing Richard to a stereotypical gorilla. Gorillas as popularly conceived. You can also say you're like Judas, to say that uh, you betrayed someone. But that doesn't mean you accept the truth of the New Testament or what the New Testament says about Judas. Uh, we can say what you're clearly doing there is you're saying you're like Judas as popularly conceived. So too with the objection from metaphorical similarity. The fact that metaphorical similarities often underlie metaphors like Sally is a block of ice is no objection, says Schroeder, if literal similarities also underlie them. And he says literal similarities do indeed underlie them. Sally and a block of ice are both stiff, rather lacking in movements, unresponsive, tending to make those in their immediate vicinity uncomfortable, so on and so forth. And he says, Searle's wrong to think that these are really difficult to find. Uh, he says these are perfectly salient features of blocks of ice that are not especially difficult to find. Okay, so that's part of Schroeder's paper, and he addresses a number of others. He doesn't address the reversibility objection that I talked about, but I think he has the resources with which to do so. Or I think we could supply it. 
when you reverse a metaphor, uh, if you're taking this view, so if you reverse Juliet is like the sun, you say the sun is like Juliet. In the first case, you are attributing beauty, so on and so forth, to Juliet. Uh, in the second case, you're attributing these things to the sun. That's a difference between the two. Granted, in the first case, you are relying on your reader's knowledge, and maybe you are committing yourself to the view, or implying that the sun is beautiful, and so forth. Uh, but it's not so obvious that you're saying this about the sun. You're relying on beliefs about the sun, but it's not so obvious that you are yourself attributing these properties <coughs> to the sun. Uh, so that seems to be one possible way of getting around it. Nevertheless, I'm not so sure that comparison theories are right. <clears throat> one thing that I think is difficult here for comparison theories is that it seems possible to attribute properties to something with a metaphor uh, that are not shared by the thing indicated by the metaphorical term, so that are not shared by, say, the sun. Uh, and it's not possible to do that with a comparison. And I'll give you an example. Uh, in fact, Sally is a block of ice might be a perfectly good example. So it seems plausible to say that when you describe Sally as a block of ice, one of the things you're attributing to her is that she's emotionally unresponsive. It seems like insofar as you don't get that you're communicating that she is emotionally unresponsive, uh, you understand the metaphor at least less well than somebody who only got that you were communicating. She has properties that blocks of ice also have. So I think Schroeder is not giving a real complete account of that metaphor when he says, you're just saying Sally is stiff, rather lacking in movements, unresponsive. I think you're communicating something more specific than that. Uh, you, it is true that both you and Blocks of Ice, or both Sally and Blocks of Ice, uh, <coughs> excuse me, are unresponsive. Uh, but they're unresponsive in different ways. And one of the ways in which Sally is unresponsive and which is distinctive of human beings rather than blocks of ice is something that you're attributing to her. Um, okay. I'll just say very briefly a bit about Fogelin's version of the comparison theory. So Fogelin thinks that not all statements of likenesses are literally true. So he also disagrees with Davidson on this. But he thinks that with similes, or rather, he thinks in particular similes are not all trivially true. Trivially true. So simile, he stresses, is a figure of speech. A simile might be false if taken literally, but true if taken figuratively. In his example, Margaret Thatcher is like a bulldozer. He was writing in the 80s, and he said this is not literally true. Road graders and road equipment are like bulldozers. Margaret Thatcher is not, literally. Nevertheless, says Foglin, there are many who would consider it true if taken figuratively. And part of his evidence for this is some research by uh, Amos Tversky, psychologist, who in a famous article about similarity observed that there are certain similarity statements we don't say, although we do say the reversal of them. So, for example, he was writing in the 70s, we do say, or did back then, uh, North Korea is like red China. We don't say red China is like North Korea. So he says, this Fogelin takes as evidence that some similes are literally false. Okay? Metaphors, he says, are elliptical similes, 
But the content of the metaphor is not the literal content of the simile, but the figurative content of the simile. So simile is figuratively true if, merely if, say, Margaret Thatcher has enough of a bulldozer's salient properties. Or, sorry, that's if it's literally true. Margaret Thatcher needs only have some of a bulldozer's salient properties in order for that Margaret Thatcher's like a bulldozer to be figuratively true. So she destroyed loads of stuff, perhaps. Then, says Fogelin, this gives us a nice distinction. A comparison is literally true if it has sufficiently many of the salient properties of the thing it's compared to. Uh, and it can be figuratively true when it has less than that. I think one problem with Fogelin's argument here is that there's two ways of reading the data he appeals to. So the fact that we don't say Red China is like North Korea uh, doesn't show that it would be false to say it. So it's compatible with the fact that we wouldn't say that, merely to say that in most contexts or normal contexts, it wouldn't be assertable. It wouldn't be appropriate to assert it in that context. Furthermore, there's evidence to think that it is true that, despite the fact we don't say it, that Red China is like North Korea, because it's possible to add, well, strictly and literally speaking, Red China is like North Korea. They're both Asian countries, they both have broadly communist systems, etc., etc. It might be pedantic to say this in certain contexts, to correct someone who said, well, it's not really like North Korea, is it? It might be pedantic to say, well, yes, yeah, strictly and literally speaking, it is. But it wouldn't be false to say that. We'd be criticized for being pedantic, but we wouldn't be told we were saying something untrue, or that we got our facts wrong. Uh, so I think the data he offers here are not entirely convincing. Okay, so those are merely three, broadly speaking, views about what determines metaphorical content. There are many more, and many prominent ones. And on the back of the handout, I've given references to some other views, uh, more recent views, if you're interested in pursuing this further, uh, such as Roger White's work and Joseph Stern's work. Uh, I should also say, which I think I forgot to mention last week, that Fuller versions of these handouts are going to be placed on WebLearn. And some of you asked about bibliographical references for the discussion last week. They're on the handout from last week that's on WebLearn now. Next week, we're going to discuss communicating with metaphor and what kinds of speech acts are being performed by somebody who uses metaphor, and the vexed question of whether what you do communicate with metaphor could be communicated in any other way. Thanks very much.